extend greetings to you this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Very fitting song selections. Part of this service is about remembering. And I received this assignment, I don't know when we set our, set our schedule, realized my term was falling coming to Sunday. If you wonder how we select that, that's usually the way it falls, that's how it falls. But, and I got to thinking about this, and I, I thought, you know, it doesn't seem very long ago that I preached another communion service. And I was actually thinking it was last fall. And so I'm just wondering if anybody remembers what was preached about last fall, last communion. Anybody know who preached? Some of you are smiling. You want to take a guess, anybody? Now, communion isn't about remember who preached. Or, well, it should be about what was preached about, for sure. Okay, but not who preached. Okay, Pete preached. Mary Sue cheated, I think. Didn't you? <laughs> Actually, I did. I cheated because I was, I was pretty sure I had preached, I thought, because I remember what I had done. And I thought it was just six months ago. Well, I think it was a year ago, actually. And uh, Pete, do you remember what you preached about? <laughs> That's fine. Uh, I, like I said, I cheated. I looked back through. And it was, I don't know, I'm not sure I have the exact title, but something about the looks or the views of communion, something related to that. Okay. Starting to refresh your memory. Well, anyway. But, uh, you know, it's, it's an amazing, I want this to be an amazing communion. I want it to be a service that is, is outstanding to each one of us this morning. I was, I was reflecting back over, uh, and actually amazing isn't the title of my sermon this morning, but I just thought of that as I was sitting here meditating about that. It actually relates to a later part of the sermon. Uh, I thought about the song, Amazing Grace, and, uh, you know, it, it lends to the songs we sang before and what Dwight shared in the uh, in the devotional meditation, but uh, the title of my message, message actually is Components of Communion. Paul, Paul, uh, Pete talked about views or looks of communion. This morning I want to look at the components of communion. And we think of components, we think of actually the different parts that make up communion. And uh, Webster says as a component, he says it's an essential part, an essential part, constituting or entering into as a part of. So you think of uh, a component. This morning we're here as 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 different people, we have different aspects of communion. That's what I want to look at. Communion is a Christian ordinance, just to refresh our memories. And it's an ordinance, if we think of an ordinance, a general definition is an earthly ceremony, symbolic of a spiritual or a heavenly truth or a meaning or a principle that we want to understand. So in our service this morning, as we think of communion, we're actually looking at uh, we're observing today our union with one another as a brotherhood and also our union with Christ. And uh, so that's what we're thinking. That's what we're looking at as we observe this, this communion. And uh, my text is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, where I have five different components of communion that I want to look at this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11. 1 Corinthians 11, rather, verse 26. It's a familiar verse we hear it quoted many times at communion and uh, referred to. 1 Corinthians 11:26. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. 
And uh, the first component I want to pick out of in this uh, text verse here is for as oft. And that talks about the frequency of it. Now, the Bible actually doesn't spell out the frequency. Uh, the NIV does use the word whenever in place of often. I believe the frequency of our observance of this ordinance of communion needs to be in balance between keeping this experience special and yet often enough to, uh, to keep our, our focus on Christ and his purpose for our lives as his disciples. Really, fr- uh, frequency is maybe not the, the, the focus that we ought to be looking at, but it needs to be, have, there needs to be a balance between you know, keeping it special and yet often enough to keep it you know, so that we, we can stay focused on what God's purpose is for our lives and keep it meaningful and beneficial to my Christian experience my, and your Christian life and walk with him. As I meditated on the frequency of it, I, I reflected back over the years, and, and again, this probably belies my age. I, I went back to some of my earliest recollections of communion, and uh, it goes back to the little country church, Red Run Mennonite Church, a church about this size. Uh, and uh, the difference was it had just one center aisle. The benches went all the way out to the side walls, and we had just one center aisle. And uh, my recollection of that is I remember I, I never partook of communion there. I was not a member there. I was just, that's most of my uh, younger growing up days. And until I became a Christian, it was, uh, I was, we were attending another church by that time. But I remember Deacon uh, uh, Isaac Good was his name. And he had the shiniest bald head of anybody I ever saw. He was an old man. And uh, he would, uh, I, I have a mental picture of him carrying this, plate or tray of, of bread up to the pulpit at the beginning of the service, and he had it covered with a linen cloth, and we cover ours with a linen cloth. I'm not sure why. That's just one of the things I do, and maybe it goes back to that. But uh, he, he, our, the pulpit up there had doors on, and he would tuck it underneath the pulpit here in the shelf. Ours just have doors, but it does have a shelf, and he'd tuck it in there, and the bread that they broke, and uh, the bishop, uh, Howard Good, he was elderly too, quite elderly, and he would come back through the center aisle, and the benches would file out, and he would break the bread. And Isaac had the Isaac Good, the deacon, had the bread in about one-inch uh, square strips. And I think he must have cut it the full length of the loaf, because they were about, you know, the full length of a loaf. And so it was convenient for him to walk back through the center aisle, and the benches filed out. And then when they all had received their bread, then they'd file back in, and he went back through the church that way. Well, that's just one of the recollections I have. But... Uh, you know, the, it was a communion service, and today yet yeah, we're still breaking bread. And, uh, you know, we could go back to the early church uh, and look at their experiences, and I'll probably go back to that later on. But, you know, is it meaningful? Is it meaningful to me? Is it meaningful to us as a brotherhood? Is it, it's a challenge that I want to, to leave with you as we think of partaking of this. Focus not on the frequency of it. As I thought about the frequency of it, I'm not sure... Why, and I didn't research, is what, how do we arrive at two times a year? I don't know. Uh, probably tradition. You go back to the early church's experience, at least in the early, in the Acts experience, sounds like it maybe it was daily, at least for a while. And I realized the church was in a transition period there. So I wouldn't necessarily want to build on that exactly. But uh, I think two is a good balance. I, I thought of it maybe four times could be better. I, I don't know. And I don't want to... 
uh, uncover something here controversial because I don't know really how that was decided. But I did think about it that, you know, from a financial standpoint, we have four quarters in a year. Should we be doing it four times a year? Well, again, frequency probably isn't the most important, but, you know, if it's meaningful, when we do it, that's the important part. And that's what I want to stress this morning. As we think of as often as we do it, it needs to be uh, focusing on my relationship to Christ and what his, what his purpose is for my life and your life this morning. So that's the first component. You think about that. We, we go through this. That doesn't become mundane, uh, it doesn't become monotonous. It doesn't become, uh, you know, well, it's, it's that time of the year again and here we go. No, it's, it's something that's more important than that. I wonder, I had to wonder what, what God looks or what God thinks as he looks down upon this congregation here this morning. As we, uh, in, a, in a ceremonial way, uh, in a commemorative way, look at and observe this, do go through this service and observe his death and suffering uh, so think about what, what, God's, what Christ's perspective is. You know, here's a group of my children. Here's a group of my people remembering what it cost me for their redemption. And that's a precious thought if you stop and think about it, what, what it actually has cost him. And we're doing it that. We're doing it for our benefit to remember that. Well, the second component there is found in that same uh, verse as well, and that's ye. Uh, that's you and me this morning. Paul here was writing to the Corinthian church, but I'm, I'm making application to our, our experience here at Prairie this morning. He's saying uh, that uh, as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, and that's talking about you and me. And I thought about our, our brotherhood here this morning. Our, uh, you know, the, uh, I don't know what the church exactly at Corinth was like, but I, I thought about our congregation and applying it to our experience. You know, we come from various different backgrounds. We have various different vocations represented here we have there's various different stages of christian life from newborn babes some that are taking perhaps communion for the first time here uh, some that have taken for the last maybe 40 years perhaps <laughs> and uh, so there's quite a span there's uh, different ages from the 70s to the teens and uh, geographical i thought from dodge center to root iowa from janesville to leroy so we're not necessarily a, a real geographically close-knit brotherhood, but yet, what is it that brings us together this morning for that observance of that communion service? Well, it's our commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it, that's what it ought to be, really. Turning to, uh, I want to read those verses in Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 2, the early church's experience at this time. End of the chapter there in Acts 2, verses 41 through 47. And you think of, think of their experience in relation to our experience this morning. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, and in breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved." 
Now, that's, a, that's an impressive picture there, impressive first communion service or in the early days of the church. I, a number of things, you know, they that gladly received the word of God, that's a prerequisite to taking part in the communion this morning. The word of God needs to be, be special to us. The word of God needs to be our, our beacon, our guiding uh, light through our walk with, uh, in the world today. Do you receive the word of God? It mentions about being baptized. And uh, they continued steadfastly. That's another uh, trademark there. We want, to, we want to be growing spiritually. We want to be progressing. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and, prayer and, and prayers. Uh, fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs. They believed and had all things in common. So it was the early church's uh, uh, experience there, and I th- it mentions, I was going to mention about the all things in common. We talk about having communion, and that's, you know, we have things in common in Christ. Now, our Hutterite brethren would take that a step further. They say that we ought to be living more communionally, and uh, we have all our earthly res- resources as a common uh, source. And... Uh, I'm not suggesting that's ultimate or the optimum way to do it, I guess. But there is, how can I say, there is a spiritual truth that I think sometimes we too often overlook. And I want to take you to Galatians chapter, uh, chapter 6. These are familiar verses. And just to remind you of those, that truth that is there in Galatians chapter, chapter 6. There is, we do have responsibility to each other as a brotherhood. And Galatians 6, uh, verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in a spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. Bear ye, notice the ye there again, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceiveth himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone, and not another. For every man shall bear his own burden let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. And I'll stop reading there. But uh, I believe the scripture teaches that we need to be willing to sacrifice for the well-being of another's spiritual interest. And even materially, if that's what it requires. So we do have, we need to, we need to have that spirit of, of common bonding between each other, even though we do not live in a communal setting. But yet we are. We're not building a, a dynasty for myself. We're, we're, everything I have belongs to the Lord, and I need to maintain that perspective this morning. I don't care what business you have or the scale of that business, whether it's large, whether it's small. It, it belongs to the Lord's. And uh, the attitude is that we, we have it together as, as the brotherhood, and we need to be willing and ready to share materially or spiritually, specifically spiritually, I believe. Is that easy? No, it may not be easy. Our flesh recoils sometimes against that. And it has to do with our focus. If I'm, if I'm reaching out and, 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 and accumulating and, and holding it tightly with my hand, you know, it, it's not easy to let it go when God asks me to share it with someone else. But it can be done. And I need to be reminded of what Christ has done for me. You think of what Christ has left uh, and gave in your behalf. It ought to open up our hands. We ought to be giving people. We ought to be generous people. When I'm reminded of what Christ has done for me. Another thought I thought about as I thought about the ye aspect of it here is a brotherhood. You know, I asked, could we observe this 
this communion service as families this morning. You could, uh, but I think the blessing would be limited somewhat. I, I think, uh, you know, if you go back, you know, the communion service is actually a, an extension or a fulfillment of the Passover. And uh, if you go back to Exodus chapter 12, and let me just do that because it's, it's clearly a, a fulfillment. Jesus, as he instituted his Lord's Supper, is a fulfillment of that and an extension of what took place there. It was their deliverance, the children of Israel's deliverance from Egypt. Exodus chapter 12, I'd like to read verses 1 through 10. Notice the yees in this, in this account here. Exodus 12, And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of month. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to every man a lamb, according to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. So it, it, this Passover was somewhat of a, a family experience. Verse 4, And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbors next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You shall take it out of the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take the blood and strike it on the two, posts, two side posts and on the upper doorposts of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire, and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. Well, I believe from a scriptural standpoint, I, I think we're... We're doing it as a brotherhood. And I think that's, if we look at the New Testament experience, that's as we look there in Acts, um, I think it's a, it's a church responsibility. I'm not saying it, it couldn't be done as a family, but I, I think we're limiting ourselves in the experience and the blessing if we would do it that way. We are, after all, part of God's family. It's not that I'm, it, you know, this family's here and that family's here. Well, while we do have family identity, and I think that's good, but yet... That spiritual connection with, with the being a part of the family of God supersedes that earthly family, if that makes sense to you. So I thought about being part of, of God's family. I, I asked myself, what does God's family look like? I think it looks like this as I look into your faces. People that are committed to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. People that desire to, to uh, fulfill His purposes in their lives. I had to ask myself, am I bearing the resemblance of Christ? And as I listened to the testimonies this morning and last week, we all have that desire to bear the resemblance of Christ. And we look at, at, at who, what Christ has done for us. Am I bearing that resemblance? And that brings me to John Newton's song, Amazing Grace. I'd like to just refer to... Uh, John Newton, who is credited for writing that song, Amazing Grace, actually two, two different hymns of it are in our, uh, tunes of it are in our uh, hymn book in the Zion's Praises. I think the Christian hymn only has one, but uh, John Newton was a, uh, a ship captain, and although he had some early religious instruction from his mother, who had died when he was a child, he had long since given up any religious convictions. 
And however, on a homeward voyage, while he was attempting to steer the ship through a violent storm, he experienced what he was to refer to later as his great deliverance. He recorded in his journal that when all seemed lost and the ship would surely sink, he exclaimed, Lord, have mercy upon us. And that's what Dwight was talking about us. And that's a place all of us need to get to. We need to realize that we need to be recipients of God's mercy. Later in his captain, as he reflected on what he said and began to believe that God had addressed him through the storm and that the grace had begun to work in his life and in his experience. For the rest of his life, he observed the anniversary of May 10th, 1748, as the day of his conversion, a day of humiliation in which he subjected his will to a higher par. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. This grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. He continued, he was actually a, a ship that, that carried slaves. And uh, some of the earlier tunes are perhaps suggested that they were written to some of the slave songs uh, tunes, but uh, I, I cannot document that, of course. But uh, it's, he say, after his conversion, he saw that the slaves were treated more humanely. So we look at the verses that he penned there. I once was lost. Think about it in our experience. As we partake of communion, we were lost, but now we're found. Was blind, but now we see. We believe in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ there in the second uh, verse, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear, the R that I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. This grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Where are you going this morning? Are you going home? This is one step toward our home as we partake of another communion. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. Do you have hope this morning? If you have claimed the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we have hope beyond compare. We can reach out, and it's a hope that will anchor us through the storms of life. He will be my shield and portion as long as life endures. And the fourth verse, Yet, yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail, we're not going to be here forever. When this heart and flesh shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. And that's a blessing that we can have this morning in Jesus Christ. And as we partake and observe this communion service. Well, coming to the third uh, component of our service this morning, that's the emblems. Uh, we have the bread and the, the cup and the juice that's in the, in the cup. You know, it's, it, it's so fitting to the tenor and the life that our Lord lived. Really, it is. I don't know what heaven's like, you know, the grandeur that he left to come and, and minister to mankind. But, you know, the things we read, the things we hear, it, it's beyond comprehension, earthly comprehension. And he left that for us. And yet he uses such basic, little, simple bread and juice for us to remember his death and suffering. And I got to thinking, you know... I thought, okay, what, what, you know, I thought about the Passover, you know, the lamb that he read about there in Exodus. You know, why didn't he say, well, let's all eat a lamb together or a goat? And I, I thought, okay, what would a lamb, a leg of lamb dinner cost, you know, at a really upscale restaurant? And so I Googled that and it went in there for anywhere from $20 to $400. Uh, then I thought, okay, well, you know, what's the most expensive meal you could, you could actually observe or share together? And, 
Uh, one of the most expensive I came up was you could order you could go to one of the red upscale restaurants. This was back in 2007, so I don't know if they're still in operation or not. It probably depends on how many $25,000 chocolate sundaes they sold. But you could walk into that restaurant, Serenity Restaurant, I think it was called, in New York City, and you could order up a $25,000 chocolate sundae. Anybody interested in that? But you know, and that was that was, was laced with gold, edible gold actually. I don't know what edible gold looks like, but it had edible gold in it, and it was served in a goblet. And I think there was a I don't know, I mean carrot bracelet around the leg of the goblet, and then it had a gold plated spoon that you could keep after you were done eating it for twenty five thousand dollars. I certainly think so. But you know that would, at that time he hadn't sold any yet. Back when I was reading the article and. Uh, I don't know whether he did or not, but uh, he said he's, he's hoping there will be some Middle East people who will, will be looking to uh, entertain some of their wives with this $25,000 chocolate Sunday. You know, and I, I thought about all the gold that's talked about in the Old Testament. You know, you, you, the way the tabernacle was built, you know, everything was overlaid with gold. You know, Christ could have said, well, let's, let's have a chocolate Sunday here this morning. From a dairy farmer's perspective, you know, I'd have thought, well, that could work. But, you know, that wasn't Christ's nature. He took something bread, something simple, something practical, and he, he left it and he told us to use that as a memorial for him. That, that loaf of bread, I, I'm asking my wife, I was quizzing a little bit, what it costs. Anybody ever see on our, in our, on our church financial report uh, a ledger item for communion emblems. Now, if we had to be buying $25,000 Sundays, there probably would be. And we probably wouldn't be doing it twice a year, maybe either. Well, you know, I don't know. I, that loaf of bread probably cost pennies, 10 cents maybe. I don't know. Electricity to bake it and a little bit of North Dakota. Yeah, it's North Dakota flour, I think. Um, and the grape juice, that's off our arbor there at home. Uh, you know, it's, it's all basically a gift from God. Really, I, I pruned it once a year. I built an arbor for it to go in. But, you know, that's, the rest is up to the Lord to put them grapes on. Nothing that I did, really. We planted them, weed them a little bit. But, you know, it's so simple. So um, very, very, um, you know, in tenor with the life of Christ that he lived. You know, while he was here... In his earthly ministry, it so fits to his life of brokenness, his life of service, his life of giving. They were our Lord's choices. They weren't the church's choices, the bread and the juice. That's what he chose. To me, that's special. You know, I like when people make their selections uh, sometimes, and that's why gift cards are so popular today. People can go to the store, and, and you don't make the choice for them. They make the choice for themselves. Well, Christ here made a choice for us. He said, I want you to use bread and I want you to use juice. And it doesn't stress anybody's budget out. But yet it's so meaningful because of what it implies. That bread being the kernels of wheat being ground, blended together. You know, you don't see anything of a wheat kernel in that bread this morning. We lose our identity in the brotherhood. We lose our identity in Christ. And the juice representing that shed blood that he gave on Calvary. Coming to the fourth component, 
the Lord's death. For as oft as ye eat this bread, drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death. Going to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew's record of the trial and uh, crucifixion. Matthew 26, I want to read a number of verses here. Remember, we're focusing on a, on a part of our observance here this morning, the Lord's death. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47, I want to break in. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him, now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Heal, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels? You get that? He could have sent, he could have called the father, and the father would have given him twelve legions of angels. Angels. But yet he didn't. Christ didn't have to go through this. He voluntarily did it for us. Verse 54, But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it thus, that thus it must be? In the same hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Are you come out as against the thief with swords and staves for to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and ye laid no hold on me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. All the disciples forsook him and fled. Anybody here ever be betrayed by a good friend? Anybody here ever lose all of their friends? All their disciples fled him? Those that were closest to him? Think of the trying time that was for Christ. Verse 57, And they that had laid hold on Jesus laid him, led him away to Cephas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were assembled. But Peter followed him afar off unto the high priest's palace, and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. The end? We're talking about death here? Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. Yea, though many false witnesses came up, yet found they none, and at the last came two false witnesses. How sad, how sad. You know, here's Peter, that outspoken one for the master so many times, sitting there on the sidelines, and here comes two false witnesses up and testify against them, the master that he loved and that he tried to defend just previously. I don't know what was going through Peter's mind as he sat there and listened to those false accusations, but I can imagine it was probably pretty hard for Peter to keep his mouth closed. Verse 61, And said, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to build it in three days. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses, which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace. Again, he held his peace. And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus saith unto him, 
Thou hast said, Nevertheless I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now we have heard this blasphemy. What think ye? They answered and said, He is guilty of death. Then did they spit in his face and buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who it is that smote thee. Now Peter sat without in the palace, and a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow also was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath, saying, I do not know the man. And after a while came unto him they that stood by and said to Peter, Surely thou art one of them, for thy speech bereath thee. Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. And Peter remembered the words of Jesus, which said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Jumping down to chapter 27, we see the actual... But, you know, thinking about what Christ went through, the, the mistreatment, the, the staged trial the desertion of his friends and those that were closest to him. Verse, uh, Matthew 27, breaking in at verse 29. And when they had planted a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the robe off from him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots that, he might, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his, ac his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were... Then were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others himself, he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and, he will and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land under the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calls for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed, and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost, and behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and, he, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city, and appeared unto many. And I'll stop reading there. But you think of what Christ went through for our redemption, death, the mockery, the cross, the crucifixion, the thorns, the crown of thorns. You know, 
I've read about death. I've heard about death. We just read about death. We just read about what Christ went through. Um, you know, I was thinking about death, and I thought, you know, some are snapped just like the click of a thinker, finger. Others go through intense suffering. Why? And we ask that question, why? Um, but, you know, I have never, I have never really, I have never experienced death, obviously. I'm here yet. You know, we look for those life-telling signs. We look for the pulse. We look for the breathing. We look for the, re- the, the communication, the response. Uh, but I have, I have never, never experienced it. I, even suffering, I have not really experienced suffering. Two months ago when I had my surgery, you know, there was a little bit of pain and suffering with that. But, you know, they were so very kind. They, they buffered it with uh, a choice, a menu of anesthesia and uh, narcotics. And, uh, you know, in a short period, it was, the pain was gone. Um, so what do, we, what do we know about death? What do we know about suffering? Um, well, I think Christ wants us to know more than we sometimes want to know. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. What do we know about death? Galatians chapter 2. Paul says it this way. Galatians chapter 2, verse 19. For I through the law am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. We need to be dead to the law. We need to be dead to self. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then is Christ dead in vain. Paul said, I need to be, again, this was in the transition period of the church. He said, we, the law, we need to be dead to the law. Uh, there's, there's something that superseded that law, and that's the redemption. That's the price that was paid by Christ shedding his blood on Calvary. And uh, Paul then goes on to say that he is crucified with Christ. And he says that in chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5, jumping down to verse 24 in chapter 5, And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the, affliction, and the affections and the lusts. So we, there, we need to understand death to the point that we are dead to sin. We are dead to carnality. We are dead to our own selfish ambitions. We are dead to, to all that would distract us and take us away from Christ. We, the life that, as he describes there in, in chapter 2, the life that I live is not mine, it's Christ's. Can I, can I do that? Can I live up to that? That's an aspiration we want to do. And if we have that aspiration, we won't do it in our own strength. We can only do it as God enables us to do it through his power. Turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As we think about death, no chapter, no discussion on death would be complete without looking at the resurrection chapter. I'd like to refer to just a couple of verses here out of this very, very precious chapter. 1 Corinthians 15. You know, we've seen those that have experienced death. We, we, like I said, we read about it. We just read about it here in relation to our Lord's death. We know we have relatives, we have parents, we have family that have passed on. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Jumping down to, chapter, to verse 49, that same chapter. And as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Talk about a resemblance of my heavenly Father this morning. Do I bear that resemblance? 
someday I, 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 that resemblance will be perfected. We, we, we desire to, to do that in a limited way this, you know, in our life here in this earth, but as long as we are in the flesh, we will have the flesh to deal with. How accurately can we portray the image of Christ in, in our earthly flesh? That's a challenge. As we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. So there's a change coming for us that are observing this communion service this morning. If we're doing it in the right spirit this morning, change coming. 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain. Well, the last component, as we think in our observing communion, there's coming a time when we won't observe this any longer. And that's what we're talking about here. We won't need that. We'll be in his presence. But he does tell us to do it till he comes. And it's our Lord's return that we're anticipating. As I thought about the Lord's return, what is it that prevents our Lord from returning? And uh, I think Dwight answered in the devotional, it's actually his, his mercy. And uh, his long-suffering that prevents him from returning. He's not willing that any should perish. I thought about some of the signs that we read in the scripture that talk about his soon return. I don't know if it's caught your attention or not, but it seems like every, almost every day there's an earthquake in the news. Anybody think about that? And uh, so I just Googled it here. It says, over the past month, a spat of earthquakes has captured people's attention. A magnitude of 6.9 off Eureka, north of San, San Francisco. A pair of magnitude 4.4 and 5 earthquakes in Los Angeles Basin. A magnitude of 4.8 near the Yellowstone uh, in Wyoming. And now a massive magnitude 8.2 off the coast of Chile that even generated a tsunami. Is the earth spiraling out of control? Are end times around the corner? And this writer says, far from it. I would tend to disagree with that. Uh, well, then he goes on to give a scientific explanation of why these earthquakes are happening. He does make some good points, and he does say that, uh, he says that each year there are thousands upon thousands of earthquakes felt around the world. According to U.S. Geological Survey, using data going back to 1900, there are over 14,000 earthquakes of magnitude 4 or greater every year. That works out to be approximately 40 per day if they were equally distributed, more uh, even when we consider the larger earthquakes, a magnitude of six or greater occur on average over 150 times a year. Earthquakes are not rare occurrences on the planet, but where they occur along the plate boundaries strongly influences whether anybody notices or not. And that may be true. It uh, depends how it affects us. But, you know, who's determining perhaps where those earthquakes are at? You know, is it God's way of getting our attention that I am soon returning? That's what I would like to think. And he says, I want to conclude his article here, I highlighted, he says, uh, so even though it may seem that we're having a lot of earthquakes, it's actually just a product of location and constant news coverage. Well, that does play into it. 
The Earth is still working like usual, relieving the stress that is built up along the interactions of the Teutonic plates. It's just that we as humans want to find patterns in the chaos to explain why disasters occur when they do. But sometimes those patterns just don't exist. And uh, I think a better way to conclude that article would have been to say that, you know, really, who is sitting on the throne of this and controlling everything that happens in this world today? It's our master. It's our Lord Jesus Christ. And, uh, you know, to me, that would be a better explanation and summary of, of uh, looking at the earthquakes. God wants to get our attention. He will get our attention, whether it's earthquakes and wars, whatever it may be. Talks about evil abounding as a sign. Well, what should be our response as we think of observing it to the Lord returns, as we think of our communion service here this morning? Three things. I think we need to be ready. And that's our communion service is a precursor of that. It's, it's a time that we look within ourselves. It's a time that we look at our relationship with the Lord. And it's a reminder that he will be coming back. He will. The second thing is we need to be faithful. Daily devotion, commitment, work, family, worship. You know, God doesn't expect us to stop and sit down because we think he's soon returning. He expects us to be uh, channels of his love, his mercy to those that we interact with daily. Remember. And I believe we need to be prayerful. That's the third one. I believe we need to communicate often with the Lord in behalf of others, praying in their behalf and challenging them. It's his love, it's his mercy, it's his long-suffering that I believe is actually delaying his return. So I trust this morning as we observe this communion service that it will be an amazing communion service for you. Think about the frequency. Think about ye, what it means to me, what it means to us. Think about the emblems. Think about our Lord's death and suffering and then think about his return. There's going to be coming a day that this will be the last communion service. I don't know when it will be, but we want to be challenged to be ready, be faithful, and be praying. Lord bless you.